Hello. I'm gay. And I'm your host. Geraldo Rivera Esquire the first junior. You're tuned in to motherfucking episode sixty-three of Geraldo's Gidge Game. The premier edging Coomcast podcast, Comcast, and um, <sighs> do you ever feel like you're letting? the world control you? Do you ever feel out of control? Do you ever feel like you've relinquished all autonomy, all thoughts, all opinions? Do you ever feel like you're at the whim of uh, your network? your support systems, the best friends you have online. Do you ever feel that way? I feel that way about my fans. I'm a slave. <clears throat> I know that's not PC. I'm but I'm a I'm a slave to my masters, my master fans. <sighs> the perils of audience capture how influencers became brainwashed by their audiences. Chapter 1. The Man Who Ate Himself. In 2016, 24-year-old Nicholas Perry wanted to be big online. He started uploading videos to his YouTube channel in which he pursued his passion, playing the violin, and extolled the virtues of veganism. 
he went largely unnoticed. A year later, he abandoned veganism, citing health concerns. Now free to eat whatever he wanted, he began uploading mukbang videos of himself consuming various dishes while talking to the camera, as if having dinner with a friend. These new videos quickly found a sizable audience, but as the audience grew, so did their demands. The comments section of the video soon became filled with people challenging Perry to eat as much as he possibly physically could, eager to please. He began to set himself torturous eating challenges, each bigger than the last. His audience applauded, but always demanded more. Soon, he was filming himself eating entire menus of fast food restaurants in one sitting. In some respects, all of his eating paid off. Nikocado Avocado as Perry is now better known, has amassed over 6 million subscribers across 6 channels on YouTube. By satisfying the escalating demands of his audience, he got his wish of blowing up and being big online. But the cost was that he blew up and became big in ways he hadn't anticipated. Nick Accato, molded by his audience's desires into a cartoonish extreme, is now a wholly different character from Nicholas Perry, the vegan violinist who first started making videos. Where Perry was mild-mannered and health-conscious, Nick Accato is loud, abrasive, and spectacularly grotesque. Where Perry was a picky eater, Nikocado devoured everything he could, including, finally, Perry himself. The rampant appetite for attention caused the persona, excuse me, the person to be subsumed by the persona. We often talk of captive audiences regarding the performer as hypnotizing their viewers, but just as often, It's the viewers hypnotizing the performer. This disease, of which Perry is but one victim of many, is known as audience capture, and it's essential to understanding influencers in particular and the online ecosystem in general. Chapter 2, Lost in the Looking Glass. Audience capture is an irresistible force in the world of influencing because it's not just a conscious process, but also an unconscious one. While it may ostensibly appear to be a simple case of influencers making a business decision to create more of the content they believe audiences want, and then being incentivized by engagement numbers to maintain and remain in this niche forever, It's actually deeper than that. It involves the gradual and unwitting replacement of a person's identity with one custom made for the audience. To 
To understand how, we must consider how people come to define themselves. A person's identity is being constantly refined, so it needs constant feedback. That feedback typically comes from other people, not so much by what they say they see as by what we think they see. We develop our personalities by imagining ourselves through others' eyes, using our borrowed gazes like mirrors to dress ourselves. Just as lacking a mirror to dress ourselves leaves us disheveled, so lacking other people's eyes to refine our personalities leaves us uncouth. This is why those raised in isolation, like poor Genie, become feral humans, adopting the character of beasts. Put simply, in order to be someone, we need someone to be someone for. Our personalities develop as a role we perform for other people, fulfilling the expectations we think they have of us. The American sociologist Charles Cooley dubbed this phenomenon the looking glass self, quote unquote. Evidence for it is diverse and includes the everyday experience of seeing ourselves through imagined eyes in social situations a.k.a. the spotlight effect, the tendency for people to alter their behavior when in the presence of pictures of eyes, the watching eye effect, and the tendency for people in virtual spaces to adopt the traits of their avatars in an attempt to fulfill expectations, the Proteus effect. When we lived in small, tight-knit communities, the looking glass self helped us to become the people our loved ones needed us to be. The Michelangelo phenomenon is the name given to the semi-conscious cycle of refinement and feedback whereby lovers who genuinely care what each other think gradually grow closer to their partner's original ideal of them. The problem is we no longer live solely among those we know well. We're now forced to refine our personalities by the countless eyes of strangers, and this has begun to affect the process by which we develop our identities. Gradually, we're all gaining online audiences, and we don't really know these people. We can only gauge who they are by what some of them post online, and what people post online is not indicative of who they really are. Most of the time. As such, the people we're increasingly becoming someone for are an abstract illusion. Shocking. When influencers are analyzing audience feedback, they often find that their more outlandish behavior receives the most attention and approval, uh, which leads them to recalibrate their personalities according to far more extreme social cues than those they'd received in real life. Fucking faggot retard. In doing this, they exaggerate the most idiosyncratic facets of their personalities, becoming crude caricatures of themselves. Yeah, yeah, yeah I'm gonna come. Oh my god. I'm gonna put the gun. The caricature quickly becomes the influencer's distinct brand. And all subsequent attempts by the su 
by the influencer to remain on brand and fulfill audience expectations require them to act like the caricature. As the caricature becomes more familiar with, I'm sorry, more familiar than the person, both to the audience and to the influencer, it comes to be regarded by both as the only honest expression of the influencer so that any deviation from it soon looks and feels inauthentic. At that point, the persona has eclipsed the person and the audience has captured the influencer. The old Greek legends tell of Narcissus, a youth so handsome he became besotted by his own reflection. Unable to look away from his image in the surface of the waters, he fell still forever and was transformed by the gods into a flower. Similarly, as influencers glimpse their idealized online personas reflected back at them on screens, they too are in danger of becoming eternally besotted by how they appear, and in doing so, forgetting who they were or could be. Chapter 3, The Prostitution of the Intellect. Audience capture is a particular problem in politics. Due to both phenomena being driven by popular approval. On Twitter, I've watched many political influencers gradually become radicalized by their audiences. Starting off moderate, but following their increasingly extreme followers towards the fringes. One example is Luis Manche, a once respectable journalist and former conservative politician who, in 2016, published a story about Trump's alleged ties to Russia, which went viral. Uh, she subsequently gained a huge audience of hashtag not my president, hashtag resist types and encouraged by her new indignant audience to uncover more evidence of Trump's corruption, she appears to have begun to view herself as the one who'd prove Russiagate and bring down the Donald. The immense responsibility she felt to her audience seems to have motivated her to see dramatic patterns in pure noise and to concoct increasingly speculative conspiracy theories about Trump and Russia, such as the claim that Vladimir Putin assassinated Andrew Bright, excuse me, Breitbart, the founder of Breitbart News, so his job would go to Trump ally Steve Bannon. When her former allies, such as the hacker known as The Jester, expressed concern over her new trajectory towards fringe theories, she doubled down, accusing all her critics of being Trump shills or Putin shills. Another more recent victim of audience capture... pardon the pronunciation, Majid Nawaz. I've always liked Majid, and as someone who once worked with the organization he founded, the counterterrorism think tank Quilliam, I'm aware of how careful and considered he can be. Unfortunately, since the pandemic, he's been different. His descent began with him posting a few vague theories about the virus being a fraud perpetrated on an unsuspecting public, 
And after his post went viral, he found himself being inundated with new COVID skeptic followers who showered him with new leads to chase. In January, after he lost his position at the radio show LBC due to increasingly careless theories about a secretive new world order, he implied his firing was part of the conspiracy to silence the truth and urged his loyal followers to subscribe to his Substack, as this was now his family's only source of income. His new audience proved to be generous with both money and attention, and his need to meet their expectations seemed to have spurred him, consciously or unconsciously, to double down on his more extreme views. Now, almost everything he writes about, from COVID to Ukraine, he somehow ties to the shadowy new world order. Motivated by his audience to continually uncover new truths about the conspiracy, Majid has been forced to scrape the barrel of claims. His recent work is his wildest yet, combi <clears throat> combining common tropes like resurrected Nazi eugenics programs, satanic rituals, and the Bilderberg meeting. Among the fields he now relies on for his evidence are numerology. There is clear value in investigating the corruption that pervades the misty pinnacles of power, but by defining himself by his audience's view of him as the uncoverer of a global conspiracy, Majid has ensured he'll see evidence of the conspiracy in all things. Instead of performing real investigation, he is now merely playing the role of investigator for his audience, a role that requires drama rather than diligence and which can only lead excuse me, which can lead only to his audience's desired conclusions. I don't know how to read. Chapter 4. Muddying the waters to obscure the reflection. These few examples are far from the only victims of audience capture. Given how fundamental the looking glass self is to the development of our personalities, Every influencer has likely been affected by it to some degree, and that includes me. I'm no authority on the degree to which my mind has been captured by you, my audience. But I do suspect that audience capture affects me far less than most influencers because I've taken steps to avoid it. I was aware of the pitfall long before I became an influencer. I wanted an audience, but I also knew that having the wrong audience would be worse than having no audience. Because they'd constrained me with their expectations, forcing me to focus on one tiny niche of my worldview at the expense of everything else until I became a parody of myself. It was clear to me that the only way to resist becoming what other people wanted me to be was to have a strong sense of who I wanted to be. And who I wanted to be was someone immune to audience capture, someone who thinks his own thoughts, decides his own destiny, makes his own jerk-off videos, and above all, never stops growing. I knew there were limits to my desired independence because whether we like it or not, we all become like the other people we surround ourselves with. So I surrounded myself with the people I wanted to be like. 
On X videos, I cultivated a reasonable, open-minded audience by posting reasonable, open-minded jerk-off videos. The biggest jump in my follower count came from my mega-threads of mental models, which cover so many topics from so many perspectives that the people who appreciated them enough to follow me would need to be willing to consider new perspectives. Naturally, these people came to view me as, and expected me to be, an independent thinker and open to learning and growing as themselves. In this way, I ensured that my brand image, the person that my audience expects me to be, was in alignment, was in alignment with my ideal image, the person I want to be. So even though audience capture likely does affect me in some way, it only makes me more like the person I want to be. I hacked the system. I hacked the mainframe. I'm in. My brand image is admittedly diffuse and weak. A uh, few people can say for sure what I'm about other than vague things like thinker or dumb, retarded, fucker, fag, bitch. And that's how I like it. My vagueness makes me hard to pigeonhole, predict, and to capture. For this same reason, I'm suspicious of those with strong, sharply delineated brands. Human beings are capricious and largely formless storms of idiosyncrasies. So a human only develops a clear and distinct identity through the artifice of performance. Nikocado has a clear and distinct identity, but its clarity and distinctness make it hard to escape. He may be a millionaire with legions of fans, but his videos, filled with complaints disguised as jokes about his poor health, hardly make him seem happy. Unfortunately, salvation seems out of reach for him because of his audience, or at least the audience he imagines, demanding he be the same as he was yesterday. And even if he were to find the strength to break character and be himself again, he's been acting for so long that stopping would only make him feel like an imposter. That's kind of a bold claim. This is the ultimate trap door in the Hall of Fame, to become a prisoner of one own, one's own persona. The desire for recognition in an increasingly atomized world lures us to be who strangers wish us to be. And with personal development so arduous and lonely, there is ease and comfort in crowdsourcing your identity. But amid such temptations, it's worth remembering that when you become who your audience expects at the expense of who you are, the affection you receive is not intended for you, but for the character you're playing, a character you'll eventually tire of. So the next time you find yourself in the limelight of other people's gazes, Remember that being someone often means being fake, and if you chase the approval of others, you may, in the end, lose the approval of yourself. That's fucking... That was fucking gay. Woo! Sweating. Fuck. Ice cream's so good. Ice cream's so good. Ice cream's so good. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. 
Ice cream so good. Thanks for the roses. I'll be sure to leave them on my own grave. Thanks for the roses. Yes, yes, yes. TikTok time bomb. The ultimate weapon of mass destruction. For thousands of years, humans sought to subjugate their enemies by inflicting pain, misery, and terror. They did this because those were the most paralyzing emotions they could consistently evoke. All it took was the slash of a sword or pull of a trigger. But as our understanding of psychology has developed, so it has become easier to evoke other emotions and complete strangers. Advances in the understanding of positive reinforcement, driven mostly by people trying to get us to click on links, have now made it possible to consistently give people on the other side of the world dopamine hits at scale. As such, pleasure is now a weapon, a way to incapacitate incapacitate an enemy as surely as does pain and the first pleasure weapon of mass destruction may just be a little app on your phone called TikTok. chapter one <laughs> the smiling tiger <sighs> TikTok is the most successful app in history it emerged in 2017 out of the Chinese video sharing app Douyin, Douyin, and within three years, it had become the most downloaded app in the world, later surpassing Google as the world's most visited web domain. TikTok's conquest of human attention was facilitated by the COVID lockdowns of 2020, but its success wasn't mere luck. There's something about the design of the app that makes it unusually irresistible. Other platforms like Facebook and Twitter use recommendation algorithms as features to, excuse me, to enhance the core product. With TikTok, the recommendation algorithm is the core product. You don't need to form a social network or list your interests for the platform to begin tailoring content to your desires. You just start watching, skipping any videos that don't immediately draw your interest. TikTok uses a proprietary algorithm known simply as the For You algorithm that uses machine learning to build a personality profile of you by training itself on your watch habits and possibly your facial expressions. Since a TikTok video is generally much shorter than, say, a YouTube video, the algorithm acquires training data from you at a much faster rate, allowing it to quickly zero in on you. The result is a system that's unsurpassed at figuring you out. And once it's figured you out, it can then show you what it needs to in order to addict you. Since the for you algorithm favors only the most instantly mesmerizing content, it's constructive, it's constructive videos such as how to guides and field journalism tend to be relegated to the fringes in favor of tasty, but malignant junk info. 
Many of the most popular TikTokers, such as Charlie D'Amelio, Bella Porch, and Addison Ray, do little more than vapidly dance and lip sync. Individually, such videos are harmless, but the algorithm doesn't intend to show you just one. When it receives the signal that it's got your attention, it doubles down on whatever it did to get it. This allows it to feed your obsessions, showing you hypnotic content again and again, reinforcing its imprint on your brain. This content can include promotion of self-harm and eating disorders and uncritical encouragement of sex reassignment surgery, for example. Not that they're all necessarily bad. There's evidence that watching such content can cause mass psychogenic illness. Researchers recently identified a new phenomenon where otherwise healthy young girls who watched clips of Tourette sufferers developed Tourette's-like tics. A more common way of TikTok, excuse me, a more common way TikTok promotes irrational behavior is with viral trends and challenges where people engage in a specific act of idiocy in the hopes it'll make them TikTok famous. <clears throat> Acts include licking toilets, snorting suntan lotion, eating chicken cooked in NyQuil, and stealing cars. Uh, one challenge known as devious licks. <laughs> known as devious licks uh, encourages kids to vandalize property while the blackout challenge in which kids purposefully choke themselves with household items has even led to several deaths including a little girl not that long ago as troublesome as tiktok's trends are the app's greatest danger lies not in any specific content but in its general addictive nature Studies on long-term TikTok addiction don't yet exist for obvious reasons, but based on what we know of internet addiction, porn addiction, beyond, generally we can extrapolate, excuse me, extrapolate its eventual effects on habitual TikTokers. There's a substantial body of research showing a strong association between smartphone addiction, shrinkage of the brain's gray matter, and digital dementia, an umbrella term for the onset of anxiety and depression and the deterioration of memory, attention span, self-esteem, and impulse control, the last of which increases the addiction. These are the problems caused by internet addiction generally, but there's something about TikTok that makes it uniquely dangerous. In order to develop and maintain mental faculties like memory and attention span, one needs to practice using them. TikTok, more than any other app, is designed to give you what you want while requiring you to do as little as possible. It cares little who you follow or what buttons you click. Its main consideration is how long you spend watching. Its reliance on machine learning rather than user input, combined with the fact that TikTok clips are so short they require minimal memory and attention span, makes browsing TikTok the most passive, uninteractive experience of all major platforms. If it's the passive nature of online content consumption that causes atrophy of mental faculties, then TikTok, as the most passively used platform, will naturally excuse me, cause the most atrophy. Indeed, many habitual TikTokers can already be found complaining on websites like Reddit about their loss of mental ability, a phenomenon that's come to be known as TikTok brain. Shockingly, no one has identified the phenomenon known as Reddit brain. 
If the signs are becoming apparent already, imagine what TikTok addiction will have done to young developing brains a decade from now. <sighs> TikTok's capacity to stupefy people both acutely by encouraging idiotic behavior and chronically by atrophying the brain should prompt consideration of its potential use as a new kind of weapon, one that seeks to neutralize enemies not by inflicting pain and terror, but by inflicting pleasure. Last month, FBI Director Chris Wray warned that TikTok is c controlled by a Chinese government that could use it for influence operations. So how likely is it that one such influence operation might include addicting young Westerners to mind-numbing content to create a generation of nincompoops? The first indication that the Chinese Communist Party is aware of TikTok's malign influence on kids is that it's forbidden access of the app to Chinese kids in general. All kids. The American tech ethicist Tristan Harris pointed out that the Chinese version of TikTok is a spinach version. Excuse me. It's known as Du Yin. D-O-U-Y-I-N. Dao Yin is the Chinese version of TikTok. Some would call it a spinach version where kids don't see twerkers and toilet lickers, but science experiments and educational videos. Furthermore, Du Yin, Dao Yin, is only accessible to kids for 40 minutes per day, and it cannot be accessed between 10 p.m. and 6 a.m. Has the CCP enforced such rules to protect its people from what it intends to inflict on the West? Question mark? When one examines the philosophical doctrines behind the rules, it becomes clear that the CCP doesn't believe that apps like TikTok make people stupid, but that they destroy civilizations. <sighs> Bold. Chapter 2. Seven Mouths, Eight Tongues. God, I'm tired. How about you? Are you relaxed yet? Are you sleeping? Are you enjoying your car ride? Are you enjoying your work day? Are you enjoying getting ready for bed? China has been suspicious of Western liberal capitalism since the 1800s uh, when the country's initial openness led to the Western powers flooding China with opium. 35 minutes. The epidemic, the epidemic, the, the epidemic of addiction combined with the ensuing opium wars accelerated the fall of the Qing, Qing dynasty, the Qing Chong dynasty, and led to the century of humiliation in which China was subjected to harsh and unequal terms, unequal terms. I'm fucked up, dude. I got, I got a motherfucking TikTok brain. I got TikTok brain. Shit, I got chatterbait brain. I got chatter brain. I'm Reddit brained. 
Mao is credited with eventually crushing the opium epidemic, and since then, the view among many China, many in China, has been that Western liberalism leads to decadence and that author. author holy fuck! Holy fuck! Holy fuck! Ice cream so good! Ice cream so good! Ice cream so good! Western liberalism leads to decadence and that authoritarianism is the cure. But one man has done more than anyone to turn this thesis into policy. His name is Wang Huning. Guess. That's a guess. And despite not being well known outside China, he has been China's top ideological theorist for three decades, and he is now member number four of the seven-man standing committee, China's most powerful body. He advised China's former leaders, Zhang Zemin and Hu Jintao, and now he advises, he advises Xi Jinping, uh, authoring many of his policies. In China, he is called Gushi, uh, which means teacher of the nation. Gush, guaoshi? Is that Gushi? He's gushy. Wang refuses to do press or to even speak. Wang refuses to do press or to even speak with foreigners, but his worldview can be surmised from the books he wrote earlier in his life. In August 1988, Wang accepted an invitation to spend six months in the U.S. and traveled from state to state, state to state, noting the way American society operates examining its strengths and weaknesses. He recorded this finding, his findings in the 1991 book, America Against America, which has since become a key CCP text for understanding the U.S. The premise of the book is simple. The U.S. is a paradox composed of contradictions. Its two primary values, freedom and equality, are mutually exclusive. It has many different cultures and therefore no overall culture. And its market-driven society has given its economic riches, has given it economic riches, but spiritual poverty. As he writes in the book, American Institutions, Culture and Values Oppose the United States Itself. For Wang, the U.S.'s contradictions stem from one source, nihilism. Gross. The country has become severed from its traditions and is so individualistic it can't make up its mind what it is as a nation, what it is, what it, it as a nation, I'm, I'm, huh, what it as a nation believes. Can you believe I wrote this? Without an overarching culture maintaining its values, the government's regulatory powers are weak, easily corrupted by lobbying or paralyzed by partisan bickering. As such, the nation's progress is directed mostly by blind market forces. It obeys not a single command, but a cacophony of 300 million demands that lead it everywhere and nowhere. In Wang's view, the lack of unifying culture puts a hard limit on the U.S.'s progress. The country is constantly producing wondrous new technologies, but these technologies have no guiding purpose other than their own proliferation. The result is that all technological advancement leads the U.S. along one unfortunate trajectory, towards more and more commodification. Wang writes, human flesh, sex, knowledge, politics, power, and law can all become the target of commodification. Commodification in many ways corrupts society and leads 
to a number of serious social problems. These problems, in turn, can increase the pressure on the political and administrative system. Thus, by turning everything into a product, Western capitalism devours every aspect of American culture, including the traditions that bind it together as a nation, leading to atomization and polarization. The commodification also devours meaning and purpose, and to plug the expanding spiritual hole that this leaves, Americans turn to momentary pleasures such as drugs, fast food and amusements, and pornography, driving the nation further into decadence and decay. For Wang, then, the U.S.'s unprecedented technological process is leading it into a chasm. Every new microchip, TV, and automobile only distracts and sedates Americans further. As Wang writes in his book, it is not the people who master the technology, but the technology that masters the people. Through these words, though these words are 30 years old, they could have easily been talking about social media addiction. Wang theorized that the conflict between the U.S.'s economic system and its value system made it fundamentally unstable and destined for ever more commodification, nihilism, and decadence until it finally collapses under the weight of its own contradictions. To prevent China's own technological advancement, leading it down the same perilous path, Wang proposed an extreme solution, neo-authoritarianism. In his 1988 essay, The Structure of China's Changing Political Culture, Wang wrote that the only way a nation can avoid the U.S.'s problems is by instilling core values, a national consensus of beliefs and principles rooted in the traditions of the past and directed toward a clear goal in the future. Such a consensus could eventually ward off nihilism and decadence, but cultivating it would in turn require the elimination of nihilism and decadence. The idea has been central to President Xi's governance strategy, which has emphasized core socialist values like civility, patriotism, and integrity. So how has the push for these socialist core values affected the CCP's approach to social media? The creator of TikTok and CEO of ByteDance, Zhang Zhang Yiming, originally intended for the content, excuse me, intended for the content on TikTok and its Chinese version, Duyin, to be determined purely by popularity. Uh, as such, Duyin started off much like TikTok is now, with the content dominated by its teenagers singing and dancing. Uh, in April 2018, the CCP began action against Zhang. Its media watchdog, the National Radio and Television Administration, ordered the removal from Chinese app stores of ByteDance's then most popular app, uh, Tao Tao and its AI news aggregator, Nihen Danzi, citing their platforming of improper content. Uh, Zhang Zhang then took to social media to offer a groveling public apology, stating, our products took the wrong path and content appeared that was incommensurate with socialist core values. Forgot to look that one up. Shortly after, ByteDance announced it would recruit thousands more people to moderate content, and according to CNN, in the subsequent job ads, it stated, uh, 
excuse me, stated a preference for CCP members with strong political sensitivity. The CCP's influence over ByteDance has only grown since then. Last year, the party acquired a golden share in ByteDance's Beijing entity, and one of its officials, Wu Shugang, took one of the company's three board seats. Interesting. The CCP's intrusion into ByteDance's operations is part of a broader strategy by Xi called the Profound Transformation, which seeks to clear space for the instituting of core socialist values by ridding China of decadent online content. In August 2021, a statement appeared across Chinese state media calling for an end to TikTok-style tittytainment for fear that our young people will lose their strong and masculine vibes and we will collapse. In the wake of that statement, there have been crackdowns on sissy men fashions, digital drugs like online gaming, and toxic idol worship. Consequently, many online influencers have been forcibly deprived of their influence, with some, such as the movie star Zhao Wei, having their entire presence erased from the Chinese web. For Xi and the CCP, eliminating the decadent TikTok-style content from China is a matter of survival because such content is considered a herald of nihilism, a regression of human back to beast, a symptom of the West terminal illness that must be prevented from metastasizing to China. And yet, while cracking down on this content domestically, China has continued to allow its export internationally as part of Xi's digital Silk Road. TikTok is known to censor content that displeases Beijing, such as mentions of Falun Gong or Tiananmen Square, but otherwise it has free reign to show Westerners what it wants. Tittytainment and sissy men are everywhere on the app. So why the hypocritical disparity in rules? Question mark. Is the digital Silk Road intended as poetic justice for the original Silk Road? whereby the Western powers preach Christian values while trafficking chemical TikTok opium into China? Question mark. Since Wang and Xi believe the West is too decadent to survive, they may have opted to take the Taoist path of Wu Wei, which is to say, sit back and let the West's appetites take it where they will. But there's another more sinister and effective approach they may have adopted, to understand it, we must consider one final piece of the puzzle, an amphetamine-fueled philosopher who lived in my hometown. At first glance, the British philosopher Nick Land could hardly be more different from Wang Huning. Wang rose to prominence by being dour, discreet, and composed, while Land rose to prominence by ranting about cyborg apocalypses while out of his mind on weed and speed. In the late 1990s, Land moved into a house once lo- excuse me, owned by Satanist libertine uh, Alistair Crowley, half a mile. Excuse me, what? And there he apparently binged on drugs and scrawled occult diagrams on the walls. At nearby Warwick University, where he taught, his lectures were often bizarre. Uh, one infamous lesson consisted of Land lying on the floor, croaking into a mic while frenetic jungle music pulsed in the background. Land and Wang were not just polar opposites in personality, but they also operated at opposite ends of the political spectrum. While Wang would go on to be the top ideological theorist of the Chinese Communist Party, Land would become the top theorist with Curtis Yarvin of the influential network 
of far-right bloggers and RX. And yet, despite their opposite natures, Land and Wang would develop almost identical visions of liberal capitalism as an all-commodifying, all-devouring force, driven by the insatiable hunger of blind market forces and destined to finally eat Western civilization itself. Land viewed Western liberal capitalism as a kind of AI that's reached the singularity which leads to be recycling everything on Earth into paperclips or commodities. There's panic and try to switch it off. The AI turns them into paperclips, since being switched off would stop it fulfilling its goal of creating as many paperclips as possible. Thus, the blind application of short-term. This view that consistency must be accelerated to be transformed into something known as accelerationism. The land accelerates not just a destructive force, but created one. He can believe all democracies accelerate to ruin the visionary despot. Excuse me, despot. Third, by the concerns of the masses, the largest of these churches is targeting. Mm-hmm. Will surely sound like alarmist, TikTok destroys so gradually that it seems harmless. But if the app is a time bomb that will wreck a whole generation years from now, then we can't wait till its effects are apparent before acting, or then it will be too late. The clock is Ticking. Tick. Tock. Ice cream so good. Ice cream so good. Traditions that once tied together, and then their absence all the our hour. Yes, yes, yes. Yes, yes, yes. But ultimately, these are. Good luck and good night. Good luck and good night. Yes, yes, yes.